The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. You've probably seen their food on Instagram. People ripping into a whole flounder, doused in delicious butter, the late night filio market fish, the pop-ups and then the restaurant where people look like they're having a lot of fun drinking orange wines and orange spritzes. You might have seen that new spot, Bar Celeste, reviewed well, named the best new opening of 2019 by Viva, the best of a spate of openings by Metro and it's a fixture and favourite of food Instagram star Eatlet Food. If you haven't been, you might have wondered what's so different about this new thing called a Neo Bistro. Following on from the new style of dining that's grown in France, which is also where this particular story began. Because it's no overnight success. It's been brought together by the team behind the La Piche pop-ups that happened first in Paris and then around Auckland, culminating in that opening late last year that's been a huge success with queues, plaudits and firm fans. But it's never as easy as it sounds from the outside. It's a huge step taking on a restaurant, and hospitality is a notoriously fickle industry. To talk the journey of beginning something new, about making your passion your business, and what goes into creating a restaurant and community, owners Emma Ogilvie and Nick Lansman join us now. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, good Good morning. Hey, so first up, tell, tell us about kind of the, <laughs> the beautiful origin story about meeting in, in the city of Paris. <laughs> how, how did you guys come to know each other? Um, often we'd kind of tell this story to friends or mainly to family members and say that we met in Paris and that's enough to kind of just already get their, <laughs> kind of their, yeah, um, yeah. their whole kind of yeah, story building in their own heads. But we actually met in the line to a club at four in the at morning. Four in the morning so <laughs> it's definitely not as romantic as it kind of sounds, I think, in people's imaginations. Um, but funnily enough, I guess it really still relates to, um, our story since then, that night we were already talking about food and our passion for cooking and um, yeah, everything to do with that, which was kind of funny. This is true. <laughs> what, what were you both doing in Paris at that time? Um, we were 22 at the time. I was studying um, on a year abroad at Sciences Po, which is a university in Paris. And I was in office management with no real aim. I was a very passionate home cook, <laughs> spending a lot of our money on... Uh, going to the markets and cooking, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, and so studying, and, and did, did you go through advertising or marketing? or what, Yes, where? yeah. Um, so I guess I did my first internship in advertising in Auckland, 
um, and I'd already lived in France for a year when I was 18. I'd kind of grown up as a Francophile just through my own um, my own interests and undertaking as well. Um, so kind of moving back to Paris after um, that kind of internship period and studying a little bit in Auckland, I got my second in- internship in um, startups. And that's kind of where I ended up working um, longer term. So I started, I got a job after that initial six month, I think, internship period. Um, and that was a ride sharing startup called Blah Blah Car. Um, which is the biggest startup in France, and that was in comms and marketing. So I've definitely kind of leaned towards advertising, comms, marketing, yeah, creative campaigns and all of that. That's so cool. And so you're both living in Paris, working in industries not related to food, Mm. but like Mm -hmm. what was it that that was happening at the time in Paris that was so exciting uh, in the food scene that tipped you into it? I think it's a lot of the places that we were we were going to, a lot of the bars, a lot of the restaurants. I think their style, the the menus that were changing every day, how focused they were on ingredients, not their own sort of chef's egos, but yeah, the I think the, the way movement, they the yeah the movement. movement I guess yeah, which had started out. So there was the astronomy movement. I think it was kind of starting in the nineties, um, and had kind of slowly moved on to what in Paris they call the neo-bistro movement, which kind of sounds a bit fussy and <laughs> pretentious, <laughs> but that's what all these new restaurant openings were kind of um, calling themselves. And it was kind of a, a movement towards small restaurants as well. Yeah, and, and it's funny you say that neo-bistro sounds pretentious because kind of the idea is the exact opposite, eh? Like mm. making it more approachable in that, you don't have to know uh, difficult food terms or what fork to use mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. scaling it back, yeah. making it more approachable, smaller, smaller dishes, two element dishes, three element dishes max, but not these crazy pretentious dishes with like 150 mm-hmm. garnishes on them that really doesn't make you feel super comfortable at a dinner table, really. Yeah. And cost as well, hey, because mm. like one of the great kind of prohibitors to people going, hey, let's go out and have a really yum meal, mm. is that you know you could fly to Sydney quite often for the price of a, a, a fancy do up meal. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think with with this kind of neo bistro movement, it all started from top chefs working in kind of Michelin star restaurants and fancy restaurants, and so. Um, what it enabled people to do was to have that kind of quality or level of food um, without having to, with, yeah, basically spending about 20 euros instead of 200 euros. Mm. Um, and it's much more fun and kind of convivial and people would party at these places as well. Um, there would be like one spot they would go to called uh, Le Cave Michel in Belleville. And that was like this guy who had won like the top chef of France. Super grumpy. He was, he was kind of like a Bob Dylan wannabe with like this kind of floppy hair and he just sat there looking pissed off at making plates and just kind of dishing them out to people with no seats or tables. Everyone was just standing there eating his food. Five euros a plate. Um, so yeah, that yeah. was kind of the vibe, I think. I think he was completely over the you know cooking industry, hospo industry, all the obligations, all the pressures, all of those things that come along with it. And um, that was this kind of last ditch. Uh, do I still do this? He just opened up a little bar, real simple, with no expectations, no obligations, etc., and just did it his way, which was very often dependent on his mood. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you'd either have the best experience or the worst, depending on how how the guy felt, really. But when it was on. It was like 
That was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. 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 I, I love that because there's always I, I used to work as a waiter in some um, restaurants here and uh, you, you know, there was always always this amazing disconnect between the uh, the cost and the kind of um, the rules of mm. dining at a degustation, uh, you, you know, kind of experience versus the chefs and the waiters who were getting paid like <laughs> minimum wage and working like a hundred hours mm. a week, and it was like it was like the army out back, and mm. then it was like you know the aristocrats out front. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, you see that. Yeah, and super, super rigid as well. And, you know, the same menu for months and months mm-hmm. and not that spirit of kind of invention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what really drove those those chefs that kind of led the the movement and the change in, in the food scene in Paris um, was just being sick of the format of fine dining um, and being able to actually be creative again because hospitality is a hard industry and especially being a chef, um, being able to be creative and not just work like a workhorse and be working those huge weeks, I think, yeah, really gave people um, their life back in a way. Yeah. They were kind of and having a, a, lost. a lot more new places with maybe less money involved with the investment in the beginning, therefore less pressure and having maybe the chefs having a, a little partnership in it obviously gave them a lot more freedom to change the menu when they wanted. When you've got these crazy dishes with a million elements on them, you can't be changing there regularly. But if you've got these simple market-focused dishes, you can be changing it every couple of days if you want because it's a lot more simple. You can be more creative, have more fun, and I think it's just it's a lot better for, for customers. It's a lot more real. It's more of a representation of that, that chef's personality and, yeah... Yeah. I think it's also more interesting for repeat customer. You know, we mm-hmm. get a lot of repeat customer, uh, Celeste people coming, you know, maybe sometimes twice a week. And if we weren't changing it up fairly often, I don't think that would be the case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other kind of element of this thing that you mentioned there, um, the kind of bar and party mm. kind of feel to it. Like, tell me about the, the growth of natural wines and orange wines and skin contact wines. And, <laughs> you know, like people who, who are familiar with them, <laughs> Um, will kind of uh, will know them well, but lots of people it's still quite a new thing, and they might yeah. think that it's even more to know. But it's kind of a reaction against having to know too much about wine and being too expert about everything, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it really is. I think when well, we first got into natural wine through our friends that had a, a natural wine bar in Paris, um, and they're extremely passionate and kind of rejected um, the idea that they were experts in natural wine. They just didn't want to talk about (laughs) the flavour profiles or... um, Even though they were. Yeah, they knew they they should or whatever, but they totally just wanted us to just taste everything. And so that's how we really got into natural wine. Mm. Um, And it's where we first started doing our first kind of pop-up series that was ongoing. It was at that bar. Um, so yeah, we we kind of learn a lot there, but I think generally getting into natural wine is more about um, forgetting what you know about different varietals and yeah. wine in general, and it's just about tasting and being kind of um, kind of childlike in the approach to which is why yeah. old world wine experts <laughs> hate it because it's like throw away everything you've learned for the last twenty years and have this new 
fun approach that everyone's included. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun and energy, and you yeah. can't get it wrong. And like, mm. you know, you end up thinking, "Oh, it tastes kind of." Does um, it taste good? <laughs> kind, of, kind of wrong, but quite right. Like, yeah. uh, yeah. t- tastes like it might be good for my guts. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it can be like that, yeah, especially with yeah. orange wines. I think a lot of people think it tastes like kombucha or. Um, apple cider vinegar or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and cider. Like I had a cider the other day, and I was like, "Oh, it tastes like a natural wine." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and that kind of spirit of fun and everyone's included, uh, you, you know, is right through the whole kind of thing of the um, the label design, the the styles, like how they're described and the like. Hey, look, mm-hmm. people are like, "Oh, I want something funky," and fun- funky can mean anything mm-hmm. now, can't it? Mm-hmm. When it used to be probably not the best thing you were looking for in a way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so tell me about bringing those two things together. So you started out like with those friends at that natural bar in Paris and started doing your own first cooking. And coming from like um, be- being in office management and working for like a, a startup, like, um, yeah, like w- what did people say when you were like, oh, we're going we're gonna to throw a, a pop-up? <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Nick yeah. had become a chef yeah. uh, by that point. Yeah. This was a couple of years later. We mm. lived in um, Paris for about four or five years. So that was, we'd grown up a little bit <laughs> around the time that we wanted to move into food. And it convinced me to stop spending all our money on <laughs> on throwing dinner parties two, three times a week and working in office management, something I wasn't passionate about, and actually just go get a job as a chef, which I did, mm. um, which was a, a crash course into into chefing that I was able to kind of put together with all the knowledge I had before of like that of being self-taught, I suppose. So doing my 16-hour days for a year, five <laughs> to six days a week was that crash course. Um, and then, yeah, we were just wanting to do something a bit different, wanting to take over friends' spaces and do our own dinner parties. And I think through people being super receptive when we would mm-hmm. cook for them or do these dinner parties, we were like, there's no reason we can't. Yeah. We can't do this. I think when we look back at it now, the food that we were doing at that time is like embarrassing, to be honest. <laughs> and I think our friends were really nice to, you know, kind of keep encouraging us. I mean, maybe back then it was cool. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it, we kind of were putting ourselves out there before um, we thought we were great or anything like that. Mm. It was more just, it was an experience. Was, I mean, from, from the get-go, though, we were using good ingredients, which is the most important. It's harder to mm. go wrong when you're using good ingredients. Fairly simple, and we would mm-hmm. always bring those vibes, you know, drinking and good music, and you know, from setting the the right light, the right tone, the right vibe. All these things mm-hmm. were factors in people having a good time. Um, and what was it like coming back to New Zealand, back for you, Emma, and and to New Zealand for, for you, <laughs> Nick, having um, you know, lived, lived in in England and France, and uh, then what was what was Auckland like? Well. For me, I'd just become a chef. I'd been a chef for like a year and a half in Paris. So I was just, this is exactly where I want to be. Um, and then Emma wanted to be close to her family here in New Zealand, which I understand. Um, I, I didn't want to leave Paris originally, uh, but I, I think having come here and realising the, the style of life, it's pretty pretty damn good. We all have it pretty lucky here in, uh, in New Zealand. Um, so yeah, we were supposed to spend one year here in New Zealand. We've been here for now, now two yeah. Easy. It's good. But a, a very busy two years. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very busy. Super busy. I thought it'd be a working holiday. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I thought. I'm just going to take a little break from, from chefing in Paris and have a little working holiday in New Zealand. Maybe go to the States, go back to Paris, and then start start getting serious again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got I got a job at Depot straight away, and then we were working on the pop-ups. 
you got a job as well. Mm-hmm. It's been two full-time jobs since. <laughs> and then, yeah. and, and but tell me about building those pop-ups as, um, you know, it kind of exploded on the scene with a bunch of, like, really fun activities. Uh, and, and, you know, this real fun vibe to them and then all of this kind of fresh new food and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess when we, we first did our uh, New Zealand pop-up at Love Bucket and it was quite early on, um, and that was... initially I think the pop-ups for us were kind of it was a hobby so we'd be spending a lot of time on like you know a couple of day um, a couple day event or whatever um, doing all of the branding with our friend Hickory Clark who's an artist um, and then generally just thinking we weren't going to be breaking even um, if not losing a bit of money it was it was for fun it was for experience Um, and as that kind of went on we yeah we were really gaining um, an understanding of what it took to um, make money out of a, an event, um, kind of what people wanted and what the yeah experience, what, what which experience was kind of missing from Auckland at the time. Um, and there's all these places in Paris we could go um, on the Seine or in warehouses where there were just kind of fun, interesting kind of cultural spaces where lots of things would be going on and that didn't seem to kind of exist here at the time. Mm. Um, still don't. Yeah, still doesn't really. Um, so yeah, there was it was just really at, at that time like a fun kind of mulling over all the different crazy ideas that we could kind of put out there. Mm, I um, think, yeah, it's just like testing ground for we we could just do a, a pop up with a completely different uh, style, whether it was like just a party or an or wine bar or a mm. bistro or. You know, all of these things combined. I think we enjoyed just changing it, changing it up, and testing to see what works, what we enjoyed, etc. Because mm-hmm. it takes a lot of work to make a pop-up work. Hey? So uh, much yeah, work. It really kind does. Of, <laughs> it's kind of like opening a series of mini restaurants and yeah. then uh, getting nothing back from it, apart <laughs> from you know, <laughs> yeah. a good reputation maybe. But apart from that. It's all gone the next day, you know? Yeah, and yeah. The, the kind of kung fu of creating all that energy and then throwing it into mm-hmm. something and then it's got nowhere to keep going. Yes. Mm. Is, um, but then I guess the flip side is you're not trapped in overheads and there's not the pressures of, of uh, will people keep turning up night after mm-hmm. night? And that must be a real... Like, t- talk me through the decision to actually jump out and open your own space. Like, uh, had it been something that you were really wanting to do here or did you just kind of... Um, how did you how did you go from a working holiday to, to putting down the roots? Um, I think with each pop up we grew so much momentum and people were so positive and it was overwhelming. You know, people would be, you know, we'd be we'd be filled out and all the little pop ups yeah. we were doing and getting bigger and bigger and we're like, we could maybe just wrangle a restaurant out of this without <laughs> too much investment, <laughs> personal investment. Um, so I think I think it was. We were yeah, just, just after all of the effort that we kind of put into mm. it, it seemed like the most natural um, thing was to kind of bank off it, so to speak, rather than leaving the country and it would just dissipate into nothing. Mm. Um, we had really created a community and a little yeah market of people that were wanting um, what we had to kind of serve up. So yeah, it was it was the logical next step to actually open a restaurant, and we were really sick of lugging crates around all the time. We, we'd had this joke about the term like lugging crates because everyone would say oh well, what a great party what a great event 
we'd be like, we'd be super happy. Next day, we'd probably be hungover after, <laughs> after this whole thing. And everyone would go on about their normal life. And we would spend three days carrying crates <laughs> along. <laughs> when can we get to that stage where we're not even lifting a finger, you know, and just yeah. organizing it? And realistically, with pop-ups, there'll never be those margins to, ha- to get somebody else in to do that. So pretending that we're like the next day, we're, we're you know, yeah. we're doing all the nice things. But realistically... Or even at Simon and Lee, we did a um, two-month-long pop-up there, three nights a week, and it was we literally had to bring everything in and out every kind of night and move all of every their night. stuff upstairs, and so it was just logistical, logistical nightmare. It was exhausting. <laughs> cool, and we'll be back in a minute to hear more about that soon. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fun that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. You can pay what you want, check it out through the spin-off. Hi, this is Toby Manhire busting into your podcast to say please come and listen to our podcast too. Our podcast is Gone by Lunchtime. I'm the host and together with Ben Thomas and Annabelle Lee Mather we chew over the political issues of the day. It's Gone by Lunchtime. Come and check us out. Spinoff.co.nz Gone by Lunchtime and it's on all the podcast platforms. You know you know where to find them. And talk me through the d- decision to jump in. Like, What does it actually take to open up uh, a new venue? Patience. Oh, a lot, yeah. A lot. I guess there's so many different aspects of it. There's um, obviously doing all your kind of financials and finding an in- investment and kind of figuring out um, how much capital you need and then there's also um, finding a good builder finding and figuring out how what yeah what your kind of design is going to be and how many people you can fit in there there's so many different aspects to it I guess and it was more kind of formal than the pop-ups where there was kind of you know you could experiment and do whatever you wanted mm. like what, what decisions went into kind of the final shape of what Bar Celeste became? I think a lot of the research from, from our pop-ups, first of all. People like, um, like the kind of food they, they were liking that we were serving up. People like party vibes. People like the natural wine. I think we tried to put a lot of it in, just like even how the, the filet got us a lot of popularity. That burger in some of the pop-ups, we wanted to put that on the menu, but then pretty scared that it would like it would make everything else look bad or everybody would... F- forgetting it so we just put it on to late night um we re-brought back certain dishes certain formats obviously the djs the party vibes um yeah yeah we definitely took took of like a lot of the best parts i think from the events that we'd done um but we were also kind of thinking about how that brand Barcelest would kind of be its own thing and mm. yeah what what it kind of represented um and from so yeah from the get-go we knew that we wanted to have um, a service for dinner and then a service for kind of late night party, mm. I guess. Um, and that has been rolling out quite well yeah, yeah. since we opened. So Yeah, and adding to the, the Neo Bistro kind of um, standards of those kind of you know, beautiful ingredients uh, done, done well and simply in shared kind of format with also that Pacific and uh, Aotearoa and like the local element to it mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was important to us. And um, for me, being Tongan and not really seeing a huge amount of um, like inner city kind of representation of island food, um, just putting on like a few bits and pieces here and there, a few dishes or even just ingredients was, yeah, important to me. And I thought it was a nice way to kind of learn more about that food. And if we ever opened a restaurant overseas, that would kind of differentiate our, yeah, our cuisine. Hmm. 
and how was it leading up to that opening? Because, like, I've always thought of restaurants as these absolutely kind of, um, they're kind of mad as a business. Like, they make a lot of sense as, like, something that you love and you want to share and, and, and have a community. Mm. But as a business, like, everything can either go off, be stolen, uh, <laughs> break, um, and then, you know, like, um, there's so many openings that you see and you look at them and you're like, how did they put that, all that money into it? And mm. who's going to go to it? And yeah, yeah. yet all of these things make it harder for the, the, the real kind of um, great restaurants to keep going as well. It seems like a really, really challenging <laughs> business. It is. You can, you can only do it if you love it. That's, yeah. that's the thing. That's it. I think especially in Auckland as well because it's um, kind of notoriously like high density of restaurants per capita or whatever. Um, competition's really high. And there is like a lot of new openings and I think people also like to go and try new things, maybe a bit more than in Paris where people have their local and they kind of like to go back there all the time. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely stressful and hard. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, especially to imagine like the long-term picture because, for, yeah, for now, one thing that goes through my mind as well is, um, oh, what if like tomorrow people stop coming in and mm. like that's it type thing. That's like that's the biggest fear I think for any restaurant mm. owner. But you'll always have, you know, you'll be those restaurants that will open. They'll be super busy, and then it will get to that point where it's going to start sliding down. Unless you know, because if you can easily become complacent and just keep doing the same stuff, you've, it's so important to just keep trying to do new stuff and doing partnerships and doing maybe little events and pop ups in your own space and being involved in cool stuff and branding and all the rest of it. Otherwise. Mm. It's just going to die down real easy because there is so much yeah. competition. I think that's a new... Um, Got to stay relevant. Yeah, a new kind of um, challenge for yeah, restaurant owners these days is you always have to stay relevant and keep um, keep doing events and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's more work in it now, I think. Mm. Yeah, the way that you um, use Instagram is really amazing. It's kind of like the perfect use case of it and that... You know, every day there's new ingredients coming in, mm. and there's mm. new people, and there's like <laughs> new menu items, and um, there's a. It kind of feels like there's always a party going on, and people mm. can kind of dip in if they want. And it's kind of bananas how few restaurants do that, considering mm -hmm. that's kind of you, you know the whole thing is is that interesting life. Yeah, absolutely. I think people want to see the behind the scenes, um, and kind of get to know the personalities of some of the people working at the restaurant and all that. But having worked for some other restaurant groups and um, looking at their kind of strategy for social media and brand and all of that kind of thing, um, yeah, sometimes there's just not anyone there that knows how to use it and they don't really see the importance of it. So um, important to do something that's true to you. Mm -hmm. You can't be having that place that if you don't really care about ingredients or you don't like, you don't do those kind of vibes or whatever to be emitting that, you know, you've got to got to be true to you and I think everything we try and do at Barcelos is stuff that like the kind of food that we like the kind of uh, nice out that we like etc mm -hmm. and having gone through that you, you know um, the big build get you know putting putting yourselves into into debt and you know take taking that big step to kind of you know um, jump out how did it feel for it to kind of to land so well name, name one of the best openings really busy queues out the door like um, how, how did that feel like it was, it was pretty, um, I don't think we really kind of believed it in a way. I don't think I even thought about it. I think we were so exhausted by the time um, we got to opening. It was like climbing a mountain. We were just like crawling by the time we'd got to opening because that was <laughs> yeah. the toughest challenge, project managing and 
the, we the, the branding, the money, the time, yeah. everything going over budget as everybody does. Um, we were just dead by the time it opened. And then we didn't expect to be crazy busy. We were thinking, our oh, service, we've done that before. Well, at mm. least we've got experience in that. That should be fine. We, we don't have to think about that right now. Let's just do everything to, to get open because we almost didn't. You know, it was, it was that crazy. And yeah, I, it was just so, so crazy the first two yeah. months that we, we reached we levels had, of exhaustion that... We had our first reviewer come in. Um, it was Kim Knight from the New Zealand Herald on our fourth night of service. And I think she came up and... Um, asked for an email address or something like that and I was just shocked I was like whoa this is like I thought we were going to have like a good two weeks to kind of settle in um, and then it was kind of yeah, ongoing from there and then obviously the results kind of came through and we were, we were really stoked and really proud of our team um, but also yeah kind of were a bit surprised as well yeah mm, definitely <laughs> and, at, and at that stage you know you were doing kind of everything yourselves weren't you as well mm. like you had a really small team and that's the yeah, one yeah. I mean it's such <laughs> the margins are so fine if you have a couple extra staff and it's not that busy then you, you're screwed from the get go that's the thing so we yeah. tried to keep it tight for as long as we could <laughs> until yeah we just we, we couldn't anymore and so you'd come off kind of months of uh, the build and working extra mm. jobs and then come straight into mm-hmm. it being really busy and not letting up from the get go and then what, what does your day look like at that thing? Because I've known people who've worked uh, as, you know, owners and workers in restaurants. And it kind of, with deliveries and admin mm-hmm. and um, supplier meetings. Troubleshooting. You've, you've got a full day and then yeah. you've got a full night and then it doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah, it literally was that, yeah. Especially with trying to promote late night so much was such an important part of our, our business plan and motto, I suppose. So trying to promote that that late night spot and making sure we had like a proper service for late night so after 10 p.m dinner service it gets quiet 11 that's where we wanted to to properly fill up and it was us being there a lot and obviously you know drinking and having friends over and really promoting it which which we don't do anymore (laughs) (laughs) but it was it, it was it just meant that we were there till close which was half two three and then we'd be up you know seven or eight prepping running around admin it was, like you said yeah, troubleshooting so, so you threw a two month like house party <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I don't recommend it at mm. all oh, wow. and and what are the what are the next steps so so having kind of like landed really well it's quite a it's quite a thin space isn't it like it's mm-hmm. not a and, and that would have been a really great kind of uh, risk uh, modifier I guess like so yes. you're not having to fill a massive place every night but now it's, is it big enough <laughs> No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's definitely not. The kitchen isn't big enough, especially for, th- for three of us in it now. It's, it's pretty tight. Um, the bar probably isn't big enough to get through the amount of people we want to get through. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's all good problems to have. We have wait lists from Tuesdays and that, but we just need, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, um, we've talked to people about it and tried to get op- opinions on whether you, we, you'd want to keep um, Barcelona says it's kind of cute and intimate little self and then maybe go, go on to do something else a bit bigger um, so yeah we have to kind of toss up all the pros and cons at the moment um, but we do have an opportunity at the moment that we're assessing to uh, yeah basically take over expand, the next door yeah I bet there'll be a lot of people going, do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But people say, like, oh, just throw some crates, like, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the car park and tell people to wait there. <laughs> that easy. D- did I hear a rumor of a deli for a while? Was that, what's happening with that? 
Yeah, this yeah. is where it gets a bit confusing because oh. we got the lease on um, another site, which was on K Road as well. Um, and our idea at that time was to use that as to be able to f- kind of have a little ecosystem. So Celeste would get busy and would be able to send people there for a drink and um, it would be a new concept. Just um, easy cheese and charcuterie, natural wine. They can You can hold people there until uh, we've got tables that free up at Celeste. Mm-hmm. But then... But at the moment, yeah, it's licensing is the big one. So we have to look into that. And it's quite complicated because it was a dairy before. Mm. So it's a change of business use. And then now we've got this potential opportunity with expanding Celeste. So that's when it becomes, you really have to start thinking. Thinking about putting the deli on hold and just maybe expanding Celeste. Because I think we're just thinking it makes most sense right now to make Celeste a bit bigger um, and capitalize on that. And then maybe go on to the other plans we have yeah and, and keep that energy in focus because it's oh, yeah. still mm-hmm. such a small because you're, you're there most nights aren't you like yes yeah 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 which uh is is a huge commitment yeah it is um it's getting easier though important. now now we've got we've got more staff i think we'd mm-hmm. be here right now or <laughs> you know tonight we've got tuesday and i've got tuesday night off and you know moments where we've got more time to actually focus mm-hmm. on the business mm-hmm. not in the business being but uh, it, yeah, it's definitely a bit of a kind of challenge as well, finding balance between work and um, life, and then also kind of stepping away from being actively on the floor and working um, in that kind of physical sense, and then being able to step away and try to get some more um, strategic kind of work done and thinking. Um, it's like two different, compl- like different brains almost that are working mm. there and, and and you you have to be so present in hospitality you mm. can't kind of like go to work and then be thinking about something in the background yes no. yeah so exactly you're, you're running a little kind of military campaign every <laughs> night yeah. with like random changes yeah, yeah. And, and so many people. changes yeah That's it. yeah and it's so distracting as well trying to get any work done there it is it's Got impossible people coming in every like two minutes and yeah suppliers and we get kicked off from whatever table we're working at five times a night every single night because people need the table and you're like, okay so you're in the corner and then you're here and then one frees up you go there you get moved again it's yeah and what's been what's been harder than you thought it would be in in taking that leap hmm. uh, what do you say I think probably management and leadership is something that I th- I'm finding, I'm really focusing on it, but it's not as um, straightforward kind of as um, I might have thought it was initially. Like I kind of had this idea in my mind before we opened because working in startups um, was kind of my experience and how to kind of get people engaged and company culture and all that kind of thing. And it has been different um, in a small restaurant with a small team to kind of have the um, the number of people that you need to kind of mm. get that kind of moving. Yeah, um, so yeah, I think probably that, think and also staffing's hard as well. Yeah, I think also yeah. the the relentlessness of it. You know, everything is always happening all the time. It's like from service, prepping, business, people trying to talk to you. You know, mm-hmm. having time for us. Days are going by like if it was if there were 20 minutes. It's crazy. I feel like we're going to blink and it's going to be like years. It's just so <laughs> relentless every day. There's no real time for ourselves yet kind of thing. But especially the first two months, it's just crazy. You mm-hmm. you just be doing something 100% of the time, sleep, wake up, be thinking about it, 
going again and it's i don't think it's great for your mental health to be honest <laughs> to always be like on a on the go a, yeah and how are you looking after yourselves not very well <laughs> <laughs> no it's getting better now it's getting better now because we've no, got more staff better. and we're taking more time for us and yeah gonna go for a picnic tomorrow night <laughs> just chill and have time for ourselves a little bit because i think we're definitely mindful about it we keep saying we need to um go mm. to the gym so that's the next thing that we need to <laughs> yes um yeah all of those things that you kind of as normal people things um we kind of lost touch with so this morning we're coming here and it's quite early for us mm. so we're kind of like oh walking with like people going to work like at mm. a normal time yeah. this is cool <laughs> day walkers yeah. um, <laughs> And um, what, what advice? What advice would you have for people who are thinking about, you know, who have a passion like, the, the you, you know, like like food and like wine or whatever their passion might be, and and want to um, move into it? Because it must have been a big change to go from startup life and office management into in terms of um, into kitchens and, and restaurants mm. in terms mm-hmm. of pay and uh, c- career steps, mm-hmm. fears and the like. Definitely. I think probably harder for Emma because she would have been in, you know, in a nice office with a nice salary, etc. <laughs> Whereas me, I'm, I'm obviously I was going to be in the kitchen, and be in that kind of world. So this is probably as you know as good as it gets for chefs. You know, have being you know part of knowing their own restaurant. Um, Whereas for Emma, I think there's always that goal of wanting to do something bigger and more and be creative, etc. So yeah, that's, that was definitely a change. But I mm. think initially it was when we started doing the (laughs) we started doing the pop-ups and my parents had a restaurant growing up um which i would work i was working in as a teenager and everything um and so they were kind of like okay well what's this whole pop-up thing do you actually want to open a restaurant um and it got to the point where we were like yes we do want to open a restaurant and they were they didn't think it was a good idea um, so up until two months ago, say <laughs> <laughs> FYI. Yeah. <laughs> up until their friends yeah. started telling them, "Oh, Barcelona, that's your daughter's restaurant, amazing." Yeah. <laughs> up until exactly. that moment, that's it. it was still a so, bit of yeah. a disappointment. Generally, I think for um, people that are going into whatever their passion may be, especially if it's something like hospitality and it is fickle, um, that yeah, be prepared for people not to be on your side about it all the time, um, and it takes a lot of kind of endurance and hard work and determination um, and being realistic, realistic as well yeah. realistic the about the, all the, of those challenges um, it can look so it. romantic on the outside <laughs> and so easy and you know just kind of like this dream but realistically you need to look at all the sacrifices and compromises mm-hmm. and work that you're going to have to put towards it it's mm-hmm. not going to be an easy journey for anybody you know yeah. yeah but before it sounds like we've been beating up on it too much there's a kind of magic in it as well. Like mm. some of my favourite times were working in restaurants and, mm-hmm. and that kind of like people come in and you take them on a journey and they have this wonderful experience and there's the rhythms of the, the night and the moments like it passes in a, in, a, in kind of a second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something really, really special about it. Yeah, there definitely is. And that was something kind of working in marketing um, and kind of having all of these campaigns that kept rolling on and on and we were always selling something new and different or trying to target different audiences it just felt like um it was never ending and i didn't really care about the product and so i was the first thing that i noticed about working back in hospitality was the kind of tangible here's the thing that we're serving you and people Mm. just like having a really good time and watching them enjoy it Mm. which yeah is really rewarding so 
I think that's yeah the big making sure when people part with their hard-earned money that they leave with an actual positive experience you know mm -hmm. I think that's something we've held to this day that's super super important to us way more important than us just making money on the short term it's people leaving with an experience people having had a good time yeah um, yeah. And with our team as well, we sometimes we have a laugh and say, oh, this is not a bad restaurant here that we have. It's pretty cool. <laughs> that would be so awesome. And as a, as a last thought, something that we kind of ask everyone is, you know, what will what will success be uh, for, for you? I mean, it's great success in very early days uh, with, with this thing that people love. But, yeah, what, what does success look like for you? I think... I think for us, it'll be having a, a style of life where we've got like a, a balance between, you know, obviously being financially comfortable, but also being able to, you know, my family's in England and this family's here in, in New Zealand. It's being able to, I think, travel through food, travel through our businesses, uh, mm -hmm. being able to spend time with both of our families, um, being above all else happy, you know. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, diversifying some of the things that we're into. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully having a bit of an international restaurant group would be mm -hmm. amazing. Um, and it, it is a lot of hard work. So I think being rewarded kind of financially is important as yeah. well. Cause we're, otherwise, it's a lifestyle business and the lifestyle's not that great. <laughs> 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 oh, well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sharing the story today. That's Emma Ogilvy and Nick Landsman of La Piche and Bar Celeste. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. So much. Thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing this morning, and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.